Well, good morning. You know, I've been thinking about a hymn that might be familiar to many of you if you've been around Christianity very much. It's that hymn that, that ends with this, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. I want us to think about that hymn. I mean, is this just triumphant or faux triumphalism yet again in Christendom past, this incredible hymn that's been penned by Martin Luther back in the you know, Reformation era? Is that, is that a, a gone kind of sentiment? I mean, just reading that makes you cynical. I mean, is that what we see in Christianity, this kind of real commitment that, that really does think it's worth the kingdom of God to even let go of my kindred, even more worth to me than my family, my house, my pleasure, my money. I mean, how much do we really value the kingdom of God? Would you be willing to sacrifice everything for it? What about your health? Even life itself? What about your almost sacred worldly possessions? What about that dream vacation home you've worked so hard to have? Or that close to perfect house that you've spent your life collecting for? Is it worth my time? I mean, time that could be spent on all those other things I just mentioned? Is it worth my money that could be spent on all those other things I just mentioned? Things so valuable to us? Oh, but what about our associations? What about even our relationships? Kindred, really? Colleagues we respect, friends that we adore. What about the salvation of a friend who is outside of the church? Do you value the kingdom of God more even than their salvation? <laughs> it's getting awkward, isn't it? It's getting uncomfortable. I mean, I raise these things knowing that it will probably provoke a quiet, if not discernible voice welling up within you about now with the accusation about what I just said as representing false dichotomies. And immediately, if we were, uh, if we have been around again, the Christian block a little bit, as we've been sort of reprogrammed by the reality of what people's lives really look like that are Christians, what we really see in one another's lives and the kind of values and commitments that we don't have to talk about. We just see it. We see it. We feel it. We experience it. We hear it in our prayers. We hear it in everything. If we were really to think about this and begin to reflect on it, no doubt that we are tempted now to just say, oh, the pastor's doing it again, this faux triumphalism of the old ages past. Where's the horns? Where's the pipe, you know, organ? Come on. Perhaps you have quickly turned to a passage or two that you've memorized 
It's interesting how almost every Christian I know seems to know something about this passage. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Phew. You know? I know. I'm kind of sounding cynical. I think, though, I'm speaking for those who are honestly thinking about Christianity. Maybe who are not believers themselves. People who do hear some of our triumphalism in our songs and really scoff about it. I mean, there is an honest and discernible cynicism in the world about us. Let's just be honest, if us meaning Christians. And we say such grandiose things about Jesus and the gospel and the kingdom of God, and, and yet we really don't go there, do we? In fact, most often we do what even I think we were tempted to do in all of this statement that I just made, that we begin to find ways to, to fit Christianity in to all these other things. And yet, at the very core of our rhetoric and our hymns, we say Christianity, the kingdom of God, the gospel, is by the greatest, most worth thing we have. Oh, but let's fit it in, let's fit it in, let's fit it in, let's fit it in my time, into my money, into my priorities, into my house, into my this, into my that. It's just one of many worthy things. And so our text wants to beg this question in a very profound way, sadly often not noticed. But before we get there, as we think about even specifically our associations with family and friends and colleagues and teammates and everyone, in stark language to be sure, as the world is viewed with the standpoint of God, in this passage, as either holy or profane, as related to the kingdom of God. And I find it really creating a crisis in my faith, and maybe yours. Let's pray. Lord, be with us. Awaken us. It's so easy to, to become callous, uh, to become dull of heart, yea, even cynical. Speak life and truth and clarity and purity into us, Lord. Let us see the kingdom of God as you see it. And might it truly transform us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, look, really quickly, on the surface, this passage in Matthew can appear to be a random kind of wisdom saying that stands alone without any apparent relationship uh, to the greater context of Matthew and even to the Sermon on the Mount. Many think of the Sermon on the Mount that way, like a, a collection of proverbs and parables and, and wisdom statements that would, you know, we, we start to impose then very little context to it. And to be sure, it is set up like a proverb. Again, let me read it. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. The structure is a classic proverb structure. Two parallel, two halves to it. Two parallels related to each other. The first parallel statement, dogs and swine, make essentially the same point of a prohibition. That is to say, don't throw what is holy to dogs and swine. The second parallel serves as the grounds for the above prohibition, as a warning by describing the result of that foolish action of throwing that which is holy 
to dogs and swine. They trample the pearls and they bring harm and attack to you. The first parallel, the two meaning of the two metaphors are rather clear. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. In context with the Old and New Testament, dogs and swine are always symbols of something profane and unholy, sacrilegious, irrelevant, disrespectful. That's more or less what you should associate with this idea of dogs and swine. You see it in Ezekiel 22, how it is that that, that you shall throw it to the dogs. And what do you throw to the dogs? You throw all those things that are unconsecrated and unholy. You can hear where perhaps Christ refrain, got the phrase there in Exodus 22. Psalms will tell, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers. Dogs, evildoers are parallel there. And they pierce my hands and my feet. Of course, a messianic passage about those who would crucify the Lord are the dogs. On we could go in Deuteronomy. Of course, the same thing we see about swine. How swine are those things which are unholy, that food which you're not to eat. It shows up often in the context of those who profane the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. And what about these pearls? Well, clearly our passage makes it very clear what pearls represents. It literally says, do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. These things are what is holy. Do not give dogs what is holy. That is the pearls representing something sacred, something to revere, something to honor, something of great worth. And so we see that, for instance, in Exodus 29, this idea of holiness as often applied to those utensils that are used in the temple service or those foods which you are to eat or those days which are set apart. These are all aspects of things that are holy, that are meant to, to establish the, the holiness of God and the holiness of God's people who are set apart from all the unholiness and profane of the world. That's the context here, you see. And so we are left here. The point of the old covenant prohibition here applied by Christ. Remember, I've told you before in the Sermon on the Mount, we have not yet reached the new covenant in its execution. Remember that. The cross, the resurrection, the ascension hasn't happened. Christ here is expositing the old covenant and applying it to the Pharisees, particularly, but also to those who would hear that he might exasperate them in some ways to the gospel of Jesus Christ where they would cry out for mercy. It's an amazing and powerful sermon of the mount. And the point here was to not allow the world to take what is to you holy and desecrate it, disrespect it, profane it. And at this junction, sermons would go all over the place. Those who want to make the Bible practical to everyday life the sermon might offer the advice that you should not let people disrespect you or trample over what you believe is valuable to respect you and what you value. And off we go into this context of this world and you could apply to whatever is politically hip at the moment, whatever is, is sociologically popular at the moment. And here we have a great practical advice passage that says, look, don't be stupid. You, you know, if someone's not going to treat it respectfully, then 
take it away. Don't give it to them lest they trample it under their feet and they use it against you and attack you. Now, of course, you'd hope that it gets beyond some kind of worldly wisdom passage, and usually it does, I think, to be honest in a sermon. To those more gospel-oriented, it's going to say something like this. Don't preach the gospel to those who don't want to hear it or who will disrespect it. And, of course, I think erroneous a little bit, though it's appreciable. Often it is compared to this Matthew 7, 6 is compared to, to uh, Matthew 10, 14. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. Is that the point? Don't preach the gospel to those who don't want it? Is that the example of Christ who is described as preaching the gospels to sinners? To Paul, who would preach the gospel to those to the point where they would stone him and, and throw him out of towns? I mean, there's a truth to this, to be sure, that, that perhaps more can, and we'll see it go back to it a little bit later, but maybe the idea of shaking this dust off your feet has nothing to do with who you preach the gospel to and who you defend the gospel to, but rather that you're not to take it personally or that you're to have tough skin. And to keep moving on with your gospel mission in season and out of season in the words of Paul and Timothy. We could talk more about all that. But the problem you see, and I've said it so many times, I hope you're getting bored with it. The Sermon on the Mount is perhaps one of the most misinterpreted sections of scripture. And often it's thought of as a merely a collection of ethical teachings and Christian ethics perhaps or just wise sayings about life in general. And nothing could be further from the truth. The Sermon on the Mount is in a context of Matthew's gospel. Christ had just finished instructing the crowd on judgment to be sure and reproof. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And then he's going to go on and say here, and he's going to say, you hypocrites, First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your own eye. And what kind of response do you expect from that? Well, perhaps a very antagonistic one, you think? And here there's another kind of discernment that's being offered. A discernment that wants to temper these admonitions and shows us hypocritical judges, yet we must be able to discern that which is desecrating to the gospel that which might be unholy. Let me try to explain this. One of the hardest things I've experienced, and maybe you too as a Christian, is my self-doubt. Why are people maybe offended by what I say about the gospel? Why are people taking issue? Why aren't people agreeing with it or believing it? Why are my, you know, and you could go on and on. Why are people so offended by the church and offended by the gospel and offended by truth a lot of truth in the scripture that just cuts against what now is popular ethics. And I'm constantly thinking to myself, what? Well, I just haven't said it right. I just need to say it better. I need to say it maybe more graciously. I need to say it more this, more this, more this. And maybe every bit of that is true. It always is something that we should all humbly consider. And yet it might it also be true 
that this passage speaks into our situation in a way that's quite powerful. That is to say, hey, don't be surprised and don't let it affect you. That which is precious to you might not be precious to everyone. And can you make your peace with that? Not in the way that would quit preaching the gospel to them or articulating the gospel or defending the gospel or the church, but in a way that would fundamentally reorient your priorities and your worth and the worth of the gospel. Are they and their association with you, their respect of you, their willingness to hang out with you, is that more worth, a greater worth to you than to standing with the gospel in its undesacratized or, or desecrated way in the purity of that gospel? Let me show you a few clues here as how we might get to something like that. Clue number one, it's interesting as you look through the scripture itself, and this is kind of, I'm going to get back to Matthew, but there's another instance in the New Testament there was, where there's this dual reference to swine and dogs. It's found in 2 Peter 2.22, and he's talking about false teachers and Christians, or at least faux Christians, and here's the way he describes these false teachers and Christians. Of the proverb, of these people, the proverbs are true. Quote, a dog returns to its vomit and a pig that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. In his sermon, Jesus uses dogs and pigs as representative of those who would ridicule, reject, and blaspheme the gospel once it is presented to them. Here in Peter, he takes them two together and he reminds them of this very truth, perhaps. Having it in his mind, we don't know. Clue number two, and this is the one I want to really focus on. What exactly does the pearl represent in this parable? We are told something holy. But what? What exactly is so holy that would, that would warrant this advice? It is vital that we interpret this passage, like I've said over and over again, like all passages within the greater theology and ambition of the book that it's in, most especially the particular book of Matthew's gospel in this case, but of course within the greater scheme of the book of God. And just for a minute, you might not want to try to take notes here, but I just want you to remember for a moment, to feel this book. This is one of the advantages of preaching through expositional you know, full books at a time. You, you immerse yourself in it, sometimes for years, as in the case of the Matthew gospel that we're in right now. And you begin to feel the man's heart. More plainly, God's heart. What is the heart of Matthew? What has this book been all about? What is that purpose or what that emphasis? Clearly, it is to say that the long-awaited prophesied coming of the kingdom of God has indeed come into the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the singular purpose of this gospel. To embellish, to talk about, to promote, to introduce, 
to explain what Matthew very carefully describes as the kingdom of heaven. The incredible focus and tenacity. Matthew starts the gospel with the genealogy of sacred kings leading to the introduction of Christ as their ultimate successor, King Jesus, who ushers in the messianic kingdom of God. Christ is then prepared for by the last and greatest of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, whose preaching is summarized in the call to what? Repent, for the kingdom of God has come. Worthy of repentance, worthy of getting your life ready to receive him. Matthew then takes us immediately to the mountain of temptation, wherein Christ is tempted to abandon his call to inaugurate the kingdom of God when the devil offers him all the other kingdoms of this world. And it's from that standpoint, that moment on, that Matthew now always refers to the kingdom of God as not of this world, that is, of heaven. He sees the kingdom of God, Matthew, as a kingdom not of this world, not that which any kingdom of this world, any kingdom sphere of this world could possibly, possibly rival. Not the kingdom of the political kingdom, messianic kingdom ambitions of, of of the messianic Jews of that day following the Maccabean Revolution. Not the kingdom of of the knowledge of the wise men, not the kingdoms of, and you could go on and on and on. The tax collectors and the financial systems of that day, it's always and forever not a kingdom that can be put on a denarius, not a kingdom that can put into a throne in Rome, not a kingdom that, it's a kingdom from heaven. As very much wanting to be in contrast with all the other spheres of kingdoms that would rival it. Are you catching the heart of God here in Matthew? Matthew takes us then upon Christ's rejection of the devil's offer. And in direct contrast, the initiation of Christ's ministry is summarized in chapter 4, verse 17. And from that time on, here it is, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is now at hand. And by now you're starting to feel the passion and the love and the excitement that everything people have been waiting for from the beginning of time is happening right now. I wish I could express it to you. Hereafter, the kingdom of the gospel of Jesus Christ is intentionally and meticulously described, not merely as a kingdom of God, albeit that rightly emphasizes the ultimate king of this particular kingdom, but as the kingdom of heaven is to emphasize that it is not this kingdom that any other sphere, that any other thing that is of great worth to you should ever rival. Now, are you now beginning to pick up where this little phrase pops in? This explains the consistent antagonistic relationship of Christ with the Pharisees, of those who interpret the Messianic kingdom as a vision to establish a political kingdom. Some things are just never new, are they? Here we go again, all about the transformation of Rome. How boring for Matthew. How boring for Christ. How it was even in that day. The disappointment in him. What even moved the people to crucify him is that he, the stumbling block, is that he did not come in a way that rivaled Caesar. 
Get rid of this imposter, they said. He was not interested in forming a city politic of this world. This then brings us to the Sermon on the Mount, which begins with the Beatitudes. All about the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are predisposed to receive the kingdom of heaven. And who are those who are predisposed to receive the kingdom of heaven? And off you go in the Beatitudes. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall never enter the kingdom of heaven. As a summation of the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the... We then turn to the Lord's Supper. You saw that several weeks ago if you were here. And there, I'm not I'm saying the Lord's Prayer, I'm sorry, not the Supper. And in the Lord's Prayer, oh, there we go again, taking it out of its context, making it about all my needs. But if you stop and look at it, the whole thing is all about the kingdom of God, praying for the kingdom of God. The first three petitions are all of, remember, it's petitions for God and what he is interested in in this world. That is, it starts with what? Of course. Make holy your name. Thy kingdom come and your sovereign rule be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's that theme, kingdom of heaven, come to earth. Where do we find the answer to that prayer? That's the second three petitions, do you remember? Give us this daily bread. Where did that phrase come from? It didn't come out of anywhere. That's not talk about any kind of bread. That came right out of the context of Israel's exodus and how it was described there that the manna was a daily provided manna. Here we have Christ, the manna of God, the provision of salvation from God. And so we give us this daily bread is just as much as to say, give us the Messiah, please, God, who will accomplish your holiness and your kingdom and your sovereign reign on earth, who will forgive us of our sins, who will deliver us from evil. Oh, I know that. It's just not fair. I can't get this out. And so we come to a passage right before this passage. You remember that one? And so the conclusion of all this, it's already told us how to interpret this passage. Here it is, chapter 6, verse 33, right before we get to chapter 7. Seek first, for God's sake, I'm hearing Matthew. Can't you all hear? Have you not been listening to what I'm saying, Matthew? It's almost, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek what? First, first, the kingdom of God. And all these things, everything else, ah, they'll be added. They'll be added. As needed, they'll be added. So what is this pearl, do you think? Do you have any clue by now? If you don't, I don't know where we are, right? What is the pearl? That holy, sacred, precious pearl that the people of God should be so enamored with, so caught up with, so appreciative for that they will not let anyone, anyone profane it, anyone dishonor it, anyone make it unsacred, anyone desecrate it. It's the pearl, the pearl kingdom of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing more sacred, nothing more precious than that 
And this is exactly the point that you'll get to a little bit later in Matthew. Again, he will say, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of the pearls. Okay, now we know. Paul means by pearl, the kingdom of heaven. He tells us right here in the same book of his own gospel. And who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Right after that, verse, right before that, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You know, this might sound strange to you, this thing about pearls. Pearls back then were more valuable than they are today by far. For instance, Cleopatra had a pearl. It was worth, we were told, 25 million denariuses. A denarius was a day wage. Many approximate that then to be about $4 billion. Oh, you say, that's crazy. That's ludicrous. I mean, how big was the pearl? This big? You know, you're going through your head. But, but just, just think about how ludicrous. It might even point to the fact of how ludicrous Humanity can be about what is worthwhile. I had someone told me a couple of weeks ago about baseball cards. You know anything about baseball cards? I know I had a stack of them when I grew up. He told me how there's a particular card, the very top end of these cards, if they're in good shape, they can go not for thousands, but for millions of dollars. One card, eight million dollars. Dollars. Really? <laughs> Value is an odd thing, isn't it? You see, both of these men, these men who found this pearl, who was willing to sell everything for it, give up everything for it, both of them, these men had an epiphany. They were illumined. They understood something that others didn't see. They have a revelation. They realize there is no halfway to get this thing because this thing that they found, this pearl of great worth, is of greater worth than anyone. What's really interesting is how it describes them as, as selling all these things with joy. Did you notice that? Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That is unbelievable. Man, that's a sermon right there. You see, it's not this, oh, dutiful commitment thing. <laughs> I guess I got to do it to be a good Christian. It's a, I just found something that's worth millions and millions of dollars. And he's just giddy about the price of it all. All I got to do is give up my house, give up my car, give up my other piece of property, give up my this, give up, oh, and maybe a few friends here and there I might need to give them up too. And, but for millions and millions and millions of dollars, this is the greatest investment of my life. And so with happiness, he takes it out of his wallet and he throws it on the table and he goes, here, quick, before you, you change your mind. This is the way the kingdom of God is envisioned by poor Matthew. I say poor Matthew because the world is scoffing at him right now. The world is trampling his pearl right now. The world is saying, 
Look, I don't know what you guys are drinking over there at CPC. But, I mean, you don't live in the real world, do you? You don't really know how to calculate worth, do you? I mean, health, wealth, prosperity, even kindred? See, John Calvin says we need the teaching of today's passions because we are so captivated by the allurements of the world that eternal life fades from our view. And in consequence of our carnality, the spiritual graces of God are far from being held by us in the estimation by which they deserve. In joy, he goes and sells all that he has because he had an epiphany. He saw this pearl for the worth that it really is and everything else in comparison was worthless. How precious is the kingdom of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we willing to suffer anything to protect it, to honor it, to sanctify it, to treat it as sacred? Is there anything, you, anyone you respect more that is worth more to you than to preach the gospel to them in season and out of season? Are we willing even to protect it more than we might want to protect our relationship with someone? With respect to the world, would we profane it, water it down, compromise it with worldly ambitions or sympathies to get them to receive the gospel? Would we add a little swine to it, add a little dog to it, add a little this, add a little that, so that maybe it'll be more palatable to their worldly sympathies? I mean, think about Matthew's gospel for a minute. Here's another passage. I mean, this is, I mean, let's just be honest. Gosh, if, if, if the kingdom of God is not what this gospel says it is, this stuff is dangerous. I mean, listen to what the Lord said about relationships. The same Christ who warned that to really experience the kingdom of heaven is to do so as a first and last of everything kind of love and commitment. He said this in chapter 12. He replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who is my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here, my mother, and here, my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and is my sister and is my mother. That's pretty intense. The command not to cast your pearls before swine does not mean we refrain from preaching. We're not protecting ourselves or that which is sacred to us. Not essentially, at least. Quite the contrary, we preach the gospel in season and out without regard to our relationships ultimately. Jesus himself ate with and taught with sinners and tax collectors in Matthew 9. We are to share the gospel but not allow opposition to deter us. It warns against doing anything that will in any way profane even to diminish the purity of the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. As an individual Christian, it means that we'd want to examine our motives before we seek to witness to the grace of God. We ought to have such a love and respect for the kingdom of heaven that even our zeal to make converts and, and fill the church with our friends and people ought not to tempt us to water it down, to pervert it or compromise it. For the church, we need to examine our measures and our methods and our practices 
that the glory of God ought to be at the very end of all that we do and how we do them. How far are we willing to go to get people in this room? Well, just this passage tells us how far. Don't throw pearls in such a way as to allow the world to trample it, to desecrate it, to make it unholy. There's nothing of greater value, not even the convert of my neighbor, than the kingdom of God. I know there's danger in what I just said. I don't want to equate myself with the kingdom of God. I should always be humble to reflect upon my manner and my tone. Is it loving? Is it indicative of the kingdom of God? And on it goes. But I need to be careful. Things that are holy need to be preserved as holy. You think of the holiness of God's word and its teaching as sacred. Think about the word of God. The prophetic aspect of the kingdom of heaven that he has been given to us. Are we willing to preserve that word and what it really means from the scripture as God intended to mean it? Are we going to tolerate a pastor who might spend half his sermon and half his week working on Greek and Hebrew? No one cares, I know. Except maybe that you want the word of God to be holy and treated with great reverence and respect, not casually. Is that important to us? Is it important how much time and effort we take to study the word and make sure we get from a passage what the passage from God's mind meant for us to get? It might always not come out so practical or so emotionally uplifting, or maybe so. That's not the point. But how much do we honor these holy utensils of the temple of God, the word and the sacrament and the discipline or shepherding oversight of Christ as through the under-shepherds? I think of holy sacraments and the way that they become hip. How casually we're passing them out. Have we really studied the scripture to know how the scriptures coordinate and how they institute the sacraments and how the sacraments are to be not profaned? I mean, Paul makes this incredible, audacious statement in chapter 11. Remember of 1 Corinthians where he says there are people who have eaten of this meal so casually that even some have died in God's judgment for it. These are serious matters, the holiness of the temple of God. If we understand how precious this pearl is, as sacred, more than to use the sacraments as something that, that is hip and, and sort of brings in a spirituality component to an otherwise, you know, whatever service. I mean, it's meant to be the presence of God, his body and his flesh. The discipline of the church and the oversight of the shepherding of the church. Word, sacrament, and discipline. You know, it's interesting. How much are we willing to sacrifice to have shepherds? It was interesting. We were talking about this the other day. 
A shepherd is a really hard person to find. I mean, yes, there's this call in Scripture that just makes it feel almost impossible. A shepherd is to be above reproach in character and in their understanding of the Word of God and its fundamental teachings. But more than that, this person has to have a ministry mindset. They have to be called, a sense of calling to get into people's lives, to get in those awkward conversations, to speak to people, to ask questions that nobody in their right mind wants to ask anyone, I promise you. A shepherd is, fought, is, is faced every time with, I'm not worthy to be asking these questions. Of course you're not. You're not doing it in and of yourself. You're doing it in the name of Christ. A shepherd is thinking, I don't have time for this. Well, of course you don't. There are a lot of things worthwhile for your time out there. I heard somebody say not long ago that maybe the greatest deterrent to finding shepherds in the church today is that it just takes too much time. What does this passage say about something like that? Why is time so sacred? What is that time being spent on that's more sacred than the holy kingdom of heaven being executed and administered into the lives of people who need prayer and instruction and discipline and correction and chasing after. It's exhausting. I know a lot of you, a lot of people in this church work really hard, but I might venture to say I don't think anyone works so hard as our shepherd leaders. It stinks unless there is such a great pearl that all the other pearls of this world don't compare. Do you see where this passage might go and how we could have so easily just glossed over it? Let me end with this. You saw the C.S. Lewis quote. Gosh, I hate that I'm giving another C.S. Lewis quote. It's like you can't have a sermon. But man, I just keep coming up with these instances and I go, God, I don't know anyone that said it any better. Let me read it again. Imagine yourself in a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you were not surprised. But oh, presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. I mean, what on earth is he up to? His explanation is he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to make, come and live in it himself. That palace here is that pearl in Matthew's gospel. It's the kingdom of heaven that God is making in you the kingdom of heaven that God has brought into this world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to give up all of our small ambitions, all of those ambitions about kindred and friends and about money and worth and cottages and this cottage and that cottage and this job and that job. And you could go on and on and on all the pearls of our life and then God comes in swinging in a sledgehammer and he, ah, out with that room, out with that, out with that. Maybe that's another way of understanding the suffering that we experience. 
maybe, just maybe, God has a much greater ambition. Because, see, that's the way the kingdom of God is. It's not real satisfied with paltry cottages. But palaces fit for a king. Christianity is a change of dimension, of essence. It's not a matter of degree and quality. It's, it's a change of dimension and essence. It's, it's a movement into a new reality, translated from out under self-sovereignty to God's sovereignty. There is no in-between. There is no halfway. There is no way to fit the kingdom of God neatly into all the other kingdoms of our world. There's only one way that you receive the kingdom of God, and it's like the great merchant who sold everything. Now, will you need to sell everything? I don't know. But it will change everything about the way you make decisions and the way, the way you treat it. There'll be something, there'll be a kind of fear that you have about losing your life that will change, losing your health that will change, losing your money, losing your job, losing this house, losing this other house, whatever these things are, losing a friend, losing a colleague, losing the respect of, of your roommates. All those fears are driven by that which is of great worth to you. Our ambitions are too small. And I speak to myself. I had a weekend. I had a 24-hour Sabbath this week. I said, dadgummit, i got to get me 24 hours outside of this church. Hadn't happened in a long time, I'll confess. And I took 24 hours, and I'm trying to fix something. And every single time, I mean, I spent a whole day trying to fix something that I fixed and other times easily. And finally, I start getting the message. I don't know. I just see it. And I start talking to God saying, God, just come on, beat me up a little bit more. I mean, has there ever been a worse four months of my life? I don't think so, God. And then I could hear it coming out. There it came, coming right out of my, my gut. It was ugly. It was gross. It was sinful. I don't need this. I don't need this. God, forgive me. And I just stopped and repented. I said, what was I thinking? There's nothing greater. I mean, I've been in this passage all week. There's nothing greater than the kingdom of God. And there's nothing I could do with my life that's of greater importance. What am I thinking? And I know you're going to laugh at this. I don't know. I'm not going to try to put any prophetic evidence on this. But do you know that after I repented and I got up and I went back to this electrical thing I was working on, do you know it took me 35 minutes to get it fixed after working on it? And I'm not lying, for about seven hours. It was like this epiphany. And I saw this stupid thing that I'd done over and over and over again that was just so easy to fix. Now, that's not going to happen to you mostly. <laughs> it doesn't happen to me. More likely, I just never would have fixed it. But that's not the point, is it? I'm trying to get, say, look, guys, I'm not trying to condemn you. I was condemned. How worthwhile is the kingdom of God to you? That's what this is all about. Amen.